The convergence in Silicon Valley was now driven by a new cutting-edge technology. Semiconductors aided by the arrival of venture capital. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 236 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And now, one, one of the great things about doing a podcast is, especially a podcast like TMK, where we spend so much time talking about people and things that we absolutely despise, stuff that makes our blood boil, is occasionally, occasionally we get to actually talk to people and talk about pieces of work um, that we really admire and are really excited about. Uh, and it, it's, it's the little bit of a reward we get for all of the... Um, drudgery that we have to wade through uh, otherwise. And today today is one of those days. Um, I'm very excited to welcome Malcolm Harris onto the show. Um, Malcolm is, of course, the author of the new book, uh, Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. Um, and Malcolm is also, uh, and I think I speak for Ed and Jeremy as well, Malcolm is one of my favorite writers uh, and has been for, I think I've been following your work, Malcolm, for a good decade, which is, uh, uh, which seems like entirely too long. Um, but I have, I have really admired your work for a decade now. And so I'm very excited to talk to you and your, I won't say magnum opus. We're, we're still young. We still have a magnum within us. Yeah, I'm 34, man. Give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> but certainly an opus. <laughs> well, thanks for having me on, guys. I'm looking forward to chatting. I, this this book has been uh, uh, much awaited by 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 us for sure. In reading the book cover to cover, which was a real joy to do, although I think Ed has read it twice now, which just just shows a level of insanity that uh, few people have. I remember when Ed uh, flew out to Las Vegas and then to the Bay Area, he had a single backpack with a laptop, some clothes, and your book. And your book was like half of his backpack. So that was the dedication he had to reading this thing. Yeah, I've been excited to read this. Back issues. The back. Oh no, you're totally fine. I, you know, for like years, the three books I've been the most excited to read have been Dawn of Everything, um, this book, uh, and uh, Morozov's forthcoming uh, Freedom as a Service uh, when it comes out next year. I think, especially because I think the last time I was out in um, California, because I went to California after after Vegas, I had been reading um, Imperial San Francisco and. This book uh, really reminds me of uh, so much of the work that's going on uh, with with um, Gray Bourbon's um, uh, really amazing like recontextualization uh, and reframing of California history. Uh, one thing I would love to ask is, you know, I think there his argument is talking about how cities. It's not really clear um, if cities, specifically cities in our imperial system, um, or urban cities in our imperial system, are actually a step forward for humanity, and that they require these like really extractive and unsustainable processes, whether it's environmentally or politically. Uh, and, he, and he draws from this cantado uh, metaphor to try to describe how a city like treats and grows more and more space outside of it to, as um, a playground for the elites, for the industry. 
for capital. And I think here, I feel like that idea is kind of mirrored in the Palo Alto system that you talk about and the, and the, and the term that Mervyn and Stanford you know, coined. So I would, I would love maybe to start off talking about like what, what do you see as the kind of running, do you see that as like the core conceptualization here? And what's your thesis about the Palo Alto system and what impact good or bad it's had on, on the way in which cities, that city and region have developed, but also, you know, kind of the subscript of the book, how, you know, California, how, how capitalism, how the world has developed, like, you know, how integral is, is its role as integral, even more integral than that concept of um, the cantado that um, Great Bourbon was trying to develop in an imperial San Francisco? Yeah, Gray actually came by the the event I did in Berkeley uh, oh, wow. the other week, so I got to meet him, which was very amazing. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, he uh, it was nice of him to like stick around. We got to chat a little bit. He brought uh, Timothy Sturgeon's uh, book about the radio age. It was a, originally a dissertation uh, done under him, and so he brought the original dissertation to show me, being like, "Oh, did you read this one?" And I was like, "Yeah, man, I read that. One. Of course, I read that." One. <laughs> Um, so I passed that, I passed that test, but, uh, so it was cool to get to chat with him a little bit about the, about the book in Palo Alto. Cause it is obviously worth distinguishing from the San Francisco story, right? That like Palo Alto gets founded as an, uh, escape route from San Francisco in the 1870s for Leland Stanford, right? So Leland Stanford lives on Knob Hill, Nabob Hill for, at the time, biggest hill in town, Big giant house on top of the big hill sounds great, except for workers know where to find you. And they did know where to find him, and they would, you know, assemble outside of his house and yell at him. And he had pretty good, decent, like, control of the security forces. And so it wasn't like his life was immediately in danger. Uh, at least he didn't think so. Uh, but this was the 1870s, you know, this Paris Commune time. And so the cities could go either way at that point, and they were a site of this class conflict uh, caused by real harsh proletarianization that's going on on this like settler population of Anglo-Americans. And so he does a very, very classic move, which is you take your family, you got exposed to class conflict, you take your family and you escape to the suburbs, except the suburbs didn't exist yet. So he's got to make a suburb uh, for himself to escape to. And that's really what Palo Alto is. And Palo Alto then, from that point on, for the next 150 years, is this outlet uh, for class conflict, not just in San Francisco or in the regional area, but for the world uh, in general. Yeah, it is It is really interesting how much of a uh, hellmouth <laughs> Palo Alto kind of becomes, where, I mean, I think your book does a really amazing job at laying out this really place-based, in-depth, deep history kind of over that, you know, really over like the the last 200 years, but especially focusing in that, you know, that 1870s onward period from the founding of Palo Alto. Uh, and, and at every step, uh, every important step in um, the history and development of the American empire, of capital's re global reach, um, the development of the the tools of capital, the machinery of capital, and so on. Like Palo, not not only California, but Palo Alto has been really crucial 
to that, you know, it made when I was reading, I you know, had this. <laughs> I was thinking about the 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 fact that you know a lot of attention gets paid more to Texas, right? Like everything's bigger mm. in Texas and Texas has this kind of like stronghold of, you know, the, of the right wing of, of capital and so on. But in reading your book, I think it's quite clear uh, that Texas is to the superstructure, what California is to the base, right? Like how <laughs> Texas does all the ideology, you know, it's the family values and the culture and religion and all of that. But Cal California is like means of production. It's mining, it's creating, you know, the, it's the bank of Italy that becomes the bank of America that rationalizes and industrializes agriculture. Like it is, you know, is sending its foot soldiers in the figure of people like Herbert, Herbert Hoover, uh, Hoover out to the rest of the world uh, to Californianize them uh, in a way. Like that, that kind of telling of California as this, as the base, I think is extremely interesting. Yeah, you really see it flip almost instantly in the middle of the 19th century from being the farthest corner of the Western world, right? That like, <clears throat> no one had been able to colonize successfully up until that point where even Mexico's colonization of Alta California was really thin. Uh, Russia had looked at it. France had looked at it. Britain looked at it. Uh, the Anglo-Americans looked at it, but no one's been able to really like make use of this place very effectively up until this point when it becomes the center of a whole world system that's going to dominate the earth for the first time, a full system is going to dominate the earth. And its center is at this place that had formerly been the edge. And when I started working on this project, I figured a lot of people were going to be like, you know, don't you mean San Francisco? Palo Alto is clearly not that important to the history of capitalism. This is like a epiphenomenal uh, location. Sure, the tech industry, but like, isn't it mostly scams? Isn't it, you know, it's not, it can't be really that important. And certainly, only after the 60s, it can't be like not the real history of capitalism. Uh, but the more I looked into it, the more it really is like at the center of so many of these stories globally uh, during the 20th century. When you, when you talk about how, you know, Palo Alto becomes the site of a world system created by people who are trying to escape San Francisco, could we talk a bit about, you know, what methods they kind of imported? From San Francisco, as well as you know what what um, what emerged that was unique to uh, uh, Palo Alto, but also exported there later because there are attempts over the next you know century and intensified really by you know by the end of the twentieth and early twenty first to kind of replicate um, what happened here, even though for various reasons, whether it's like you know the political economy of the country set up or whether it's like the fact that none of these countries or they want to set up other outposts or, you know, hegemons or, you know, dominating the world system, there's still attempts nonetheless to export it in a way that seems reminiscent of the attempt to leave San Francisco to go to uh, Palo Alto. Yeah, or even just once you exhaust the territory of uh, California in some ways, you need to export those systems. So they run into this with the mining systems very quickly, where the technological and profit-based mining allows them to advance so quickly that they are destroying, literally destroying the land. And this happens around Leland Stanford himself, who's a main character in the book, um, that one of the mining towns that he is working in, he's not like a judge slash barman because those are combined jobs in like the, the West, you know, 
and the town that he's ruling over soon after he leaves the whole town like falls down the mountain because of these hydraulic miners had been literally digging out the foundation of their own town until the whole town was detached from the soil and that's a great metaphor but also it's a literal thing that happened but also a great metaphor for this practice of techno-scientific capitalism and so they buy the they are able to create governmental systems that constrain this free capitalist, uh, vigilante capitalist style. And they ban that kind of hydraulic mining in California, but then they export it throughout the world. And Herbert Hoover is a great example um, of that exporting, that he is this mining engineer who is traveling all over the world, taking his training from California, but Palo Alto in particular. He's a member of the first class of Stan- Leland Stanford Junior University where he studies these cutting-edge mining techniques. And he's in Peru, he's in South Africa, he's in Myanmar, he's in Western Australia, he's in China, he's in Russia. It's this very, like, forest gum, you know, anywhere there is uh, colonial mining practices digging other people's stuff out of the ground, he's there to help and to really to keep labor costs low and to keep things efficient. And he does this through the application of scientific mining engineering techniques that he learned at Stanford, but also through labor management tools that he picked up in California, which included, for example, importing Chinese workers, which he does in South Africa, and then splitting workers based on race, uh, increasing quotas, decreasing pay. Uh, He uses these practices of profit-based production to ratchet down these labor costs and achieve new efficiencies, not just through technology or not just through what we think of as technology, but also through technologies of labor relation. Which I think is a really crucial aspect of engineering that, you know, can persist uh, over the development of, you know, what we now know as Silicon Valley um, is that, you know, engineering as a profession was always created for and by capital, right? To serve the interests of capital and in large part to, you know, rationalize production, make it more efficient, make it more standardized and so on, but also as a way to control the inputs into production, not just the, the resources, the, the, the mining materials and, and so on, but also importantly, labor, uh, you know, in controlling and managing the inputs of, uh, of labor into the production process has always been a core part of the job of the engineer. And it really does seem like you've, you've got these different figures throughout the book, um, who are, just archetypal representations of uh, these certain kinds of, of 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 great men of capitalism, right? You've got the the robber baron, you've got the engineer. You know, later we'll go on and see, you know, the entrepreneur. Um, these kinds of people. It is always emerging out of and tied very closely to Palo Alto. 
Yeah, and you can really draw straight lines. I think when I first started the book, I thought I was going to have to do a lot of more like metaphorical connecting of these figures. Like, oh, you know, the mining engineer is like the electronics engineer because they're both engineers and they're both dealing with these like impersonal injunctions of profit. Here's how they're connected. And then you look at it and you're like, oh no, Bill Shockley Sr. is a mining engineer and then Bill Shockley Jr. is a electronics engineer and like they're just, it's that close a connection right and like oh herbert hoover is like friends with his parents right <laughs> like oh you don't have to like stretch or whatever it's direct connections between these people at a level that i was that's not necessarily like required in order to tell this history right they don't need these personal connections in order for it to be important and in order for these things to be related through space and time and history uh but it so happens, you know, California's history is pretty small and Palo Alto itself is so small and the history is so short that you find these direct linkages, uh, I think, much more frequently than one might expect. Yeah, that was definitely something that really also surprised me reading through this. You know, I think even though when I come across Imperial San Francisco, I think also there, there's a lot of effort taken to show how in California, a lot of elites, specifically a narrow group of families in San Francisco, dominate things and have been connected in one way or another since like the first uh, mining gold, uh, rush, or, um, you know, gold rush. Um, and then to see here similarly that... You know, not only did a lot of these people overlap, either in careers or whether they're actually educated or who they knew, but then they go about creating institutions where they all are still, <laughs> where, where their connections are even more intensified, right? Um, would we, so I think, you know, one thing is, could we also talk about some of the, uh, I guess, some of the institutions I think that stretch across California history and start as like these incubators of like really close networks and then just end up dominating i mean of course stanford university is you know the kind of um the goliath here that's lurking in the background well in the front really um that connects and educates and trains not only these people but like a whole class of individuals and also reshapes the land and, and creates programs to try to pull in people who might not ordinarily be in this class of class of you know capitalists or engineers or you know courtiers um but you know i think you know, going through your research, I mean, were, were you surprised by any other connections, I think, or any other incubators or hubs or networks that emerged outside of not just with interpersonal connections, but what was built and, and, and how it kept connecting people over time? I don't know about surprise per se, but again, definitely these the connections are very close. And it was, I didn't go fully down the Bohemian Club, Bohemian Grove <laughs> <Right>. uh, <laughs> rabbit hole. Definitely right. could have, right? I could have spent mm -hmm. way more time on that topic because there's a lot there. And eventually you just sound totally nuts if you just draw, <laughs> keep drawing all these lines. And, you know, Bill Shockley Jr. was was there. He went a couple times and he took notes on everything like he took notes on really everything like in his life everything and his archive at stanford is sealed for i think a couple more years before they open it but when they do that'll probably be like the biggest public uh information about what actually was going on on bohemian grove in the 60s uh so that'll be pretty cool i was bummed that i couldn't get in there before writing this book because so it sounds sounds like you've got a, a a book that needs to be written just based on once those archives are opened. Man, I don't know if I can spend more time with Bill Shockley though. That guy is, <laughs> is gnarly. Spending time in his brain is is rough. 
Well, speaking of that, I do want to spend a bit of time with Bill Shockley Jr. uh, in the podcast, at least right now, because you do talk about you you have some really uh, excellent uh, kind of frame setting around how you're approaching this in the beginning of the book. And then we can jump towards like the the second third and the third third of the book, Um, because I, I, I think the history of Leland Stanford uh, and Leland Stanford Junior University and all of that and the the the, uh, the railroads, like it's all extremely interesting, extremely important. Um, but as well, like I I, I want to jump to late, more recent history, um, not 150 years ago, but more like 50 years ago, um, or you know maybe a little bit more than that, just because I think it. There, there, that is a, a time period that gets uh, particularly amnesia hold. Um, like, you know, people can kind of look back a little bit further because it's like more disconnected and be like, oh, wow, like the railroad barons and stuff were connected mm-hmm. to the development of this, you know, all of this. And then we can go back, you know, 200 years ago and see the, the you know, as you put it, California's white dictatorship, uh, you know, it turning all this ecological abundance into, um, as you really nicely put it, the settlers turned the ecological abundance that supported a dense collage of indigenous communities into the farms that capitalized on Giannini's weird mosaic of bank branches. And you go on to say that, you know, Anglo-American West Coast history is so brief that there is no California fortune. We can't trace back through these original expropriations of land and labor. It takes work not to see it. But at the same time, in talking to people um, who have read your book or are reading your book, some of the most uh, shocking things that they are reading are things about like, you know, uh, Bill Shockley Jr. and some mm-hmm. of his beliefs and how central he was to all of this and how baked in his, you know, v- uh, virulent racist eugenics and all that is into, it's baked into the DNA now of, of, of Silicon Valley. And it's, it's, it's really strikes me that this is a, um, a, a kind of point in time or in a, in a particular person who is really important that a lot of people just don't really know much about for some reason. I'm not, I'm not sure why, but you know, I, I was just reading um, and reviewing uh, another book on cybernetics, right? And it's like this mm. is like a, a cybernetics and Norbert Wiener and you know the uh, the history of this kind of weird science that came around and this came about in the same time. I feel like I have read so many books uh, about cybernetics. It's a we- it's a particular point of magnetic magnetic allure, especially for like social mm. scientists and historians who are like. Can't can't talk enough about cybernetics. We all know who Norbert Wiener is. We all know about all this. But I, I, it struck me in thinking about the histories of cybernetics that are that have been kind of really consistently a point of popular uh, attention, especially at least in you know academia um, for the last thirty years. And it strikes me that there's comparatively nowhere near as many uh, histories and studies and just general knowledge around like. Uh, someone like William Shockley and something like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Fairborn, right? 
um, or Fairchild rather, uh, semiconductors. And, and so I would love to, to get into maybe some of that. Like kind of you, you've, you've set the stage a little bit that like William Shockley senior is this, you know, uh, was a, a, a mining engineer, you know, was friends with, uh, Herbert Hoover, um, who, who, you know, for those who don't remember, was a president <laughs> of, mm-hmm. of the U.S. Um, but like, it's really, I think, the, the, the junior in this situation, William Shockley Jr., who is maybe one of the most like influential, uh, unfortunately figures in terms of what we now think of as the main center, one of the main centers of power and capital in society right now. Yeah. So if we think about mining, mining engineering and mining finance as like the crypto of its time, which it sort of was at the point we're talking about, uh, we're not just talking about mining, we're talking about mining finance and mining financial instruments, which is what, by this point, Hoover is living in London as opposed to South Africa, right? He's not at the mines, he's trading mining paper. And as are a bunch of other people, including the the Shockleys. And uh, May Bradford Shockley is having a baby, their f- first and only child, and the Hoovers help their friends out, get them a job back in Palo Alto at Stanford. So Bill Shockley Sr.'s teaching mining engineering back at Stanford can support his family rather than being like a crypto guy partying in London, which is sort of what he was at the time. And so the Shockley Jr. grows up in Palo Alto, which is at that time is the center of the IQ movement, the eugenics uh, practice in the United States. He is tested by Lewis Terman as part of the California genius uh, experiments. He ends up performing just a little bit sub-genius, although his mother performs considerably above genius level, and which is to say that he's part of this community from the beginning. He's like as organic a intellectual as Palo Alto could possibly produce. And he goes on to study at MIT, and he becomes a great uh, engineer, co-invents the, at Bell Labs the point contact transistor. Uh, but also during World War II, serves as the sort of jack-of-all-trades genius analyst for the Defense Department, you know, going around the war theater solving tricky math-type problems. Uh, And in doing this, he produces a document called On the Economics of Atomic Bombing, which sets the stage really for U.S. post-war mutually assured destruction uh, nuclear missile policy. And Shockley makes that policy possible by going to Palo Alto, recruiting a bunch of hotshot young engineers from around the world, um, and Europe at least, and the United States, uh, and starting the first real semiconductor company in Palo Alto that becomes Silicon Valley, uh, which is Shockley Semiconductor. He does an awful job. The, The company combusts immediately, and they all, his top recruits, all end up going to Fairchild, where they do end up producing the first silicon semiconductor. This first generation of silicon semiconductors all go into the Minuteman 1 nuclear missile, which then fulfills Shockley's sort of uh, prophecy about the economics of atomic bombing and how the world was going to move to the nuclear missile as the dominant uh, strategic object of the period. The kind of the deep connections here to the military are all are are 
you know, I think a lot of our listeners at least will be certainly familiar with the idea that like the, the military industrial complex in Silicon Valley is not something new. And so whenever we hear stories about like, Oh no, like, you know, Google is, is going for a contract for, you know, project Maven or something like that, or, or Amazon is selling its cloud computing to the Pentagon. Like, you know, this is all within a very long, uh, pedigree of these these tech companies in Silicon Valley, um, in Palo Alto, or you know related to the kind of broader uh, outputs uh, of, of of Palo Alto and Silicon Valley. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people might have a little bit of familiarity or, or, or with the idea that like you know the first kind of silicon chips were created because of contracts with the military. And as you just laid out, like specifically they were created, go into the Minuteman one missiles, right? Nuclear warheads. Um, and, but like you, you just mentioned that William Shockley Jr. kind of before that had this, this career during world war two as a, as a, you know, a kind of a roving genius um, in, a, in a way, right? Like a lot of the, the top decision makers, the top brass in the military um, really saw Shockley and, and his group of, of, of mathematicians and engineers as kind of a, a very early and central kind of, you know, complex complex analyst systems analysis, like almost very, I mean, not almost, I think quite, quite explicitly um, connecting and preempting the kind of RAND corporation um, that would later step in. Yeah, prefiguring. So his team actually, even more than engineers or anything, was actuaries, and they were doing their work on with pencils and paper. So where the, the Terman team, um, Frederick Terman's team was using uh, like electronics, and there were other, there's a team at Penn that was using the first computer, um, and then there was Turing's team, you know, doing code breaking and stuff. These guys were uh, about thinking outside of the box and approaching problems from new directions. It's very, it's very like Palo Alto style thinking group. You know, we're going to come in with our disruptive genius and figure out stuff that you couldn't figure out before without us. And they were, they were pretty effective and the defense department maintained this relationship with him going forward, which I think worked for Bell Labs because he was a huge asshole and everyone really hated him because he was a like a real hard to get along with just total psycho obsessed with IQ testing everybody else obsessed with natural hierarchy and people's places within it. And, uh, you know, one of the most prominent racists of his time. And that's what he really ends up dedicating as his career moves forward. After the failure of Shockley labs, he gets a fellowship at Stanford. One of the electronics companies in the milieu Ampex is what it's called. Uh, funds a professor uh, chair for him at Stanford. And instead of using that to, you know, tell people about electronics engineering, which is probably what they hired him for, he uses this to just spout Nazism, basically, like 24-7 out of Stanford. And the most maybe influential, he's very influential from this position, but maybe the most influential thing he does is take this young scholar who's on a fellowship at Stanford named Arthur Jensen under his wing and convince Jensen of uh, hereditarian ideas about race and IQ. And Jensen then produces this 100-plus page article for the Harvard Education Review arguing that 
compensatory education had failed and really triggering a new age of, or a new set of arguments for segregationists. One that like persists more or less to this day. Yeah. I mean, I think this, this, this idea too, like, you know, if people do know about, you know, William Shockley's virulent racism and obsession with eugenics and IQ and all of that. It seems like they, I, I always, if I ever hear people mention it, I always hear them mention it in terms of like, almost like a, like an old man having a, a kind of, you know, Oh, uh, you know, mm. he, he kind of lost his mind as he got older, right. right? You know, he, you know, he he did so many great things. He got a Nobel Prize, right? He was, you know, uh, instrumental in creating uh, the, you know, the modern silicon, uh, you know, industry. Uh, all of this, you know, he was the, you know, pioneered operations research, et cetera, et cetera. And then as he got older. He just, he just got really weird. You know, he was just spending too much time on Reddit. You know, he got weirdly preoccupied with, uh, (laughs) with race science. Someone gave him some golden calipers and he just, you know, he never put them away. And they really don't connect it to the history of that racism and racialism in Palo Alto, this place that he is so deeply connected to, right? The fact that he is, that a eugenicist is, you know, more or less measuring his skull when he's a child as part of this statewide eugenics program that is operated out of the town where he lives that his mother participates in, you know, with him or whatever. And even his biographers, even Shockley's biographers are like, you know, we don't know where this racism came from. Like seems, yeah, maybe got bumped on the head or something, you know, like it's not like, it's not like he's from the South. (laughs) And it's very funny that they like forget this, deep history in California of, again, racism, but not just racism, racialism, right? The foundation of these scientific racialist ideologies that are produced by and appeal to people just like Shockley uh, and people still to this day, right? And I think even since I wrote this book, some of these folks have become more mask off with regard to their belief in natural hierarchy and they're talking about the order of races and eugenics and uh, stuff like that. But again, and again, I'm sure we're going to see the same stuff of like, Oh, they spending too much time on Reddit. This is coming from somewhere weird. This is not endemic to Silicon Valley. Obviously it's California. It's very multicultural. There's no racism in California, but of course racism is like, and racialism and the segregation of production are key elements of Anglo-American California from the beginning. Yeah, you know, I think another really you know interesting pillar or that that feeds into this also is you know as you establish the role and relationship uh, that the defense uh, you know, Department of Defense, the Pentagon, fostered with uh, with Palo Alto, especially. I think as it became clear that the colonial enterprise, the America's colonial enterprise, was not uh, particularly sustainable, but nonetheless still necessary uh, for for the United States to project power worldwide, and that it was World War II and the defeat, you know, the, the destruction of its allies, but the ascension of the United States brought multiple crises at various moments in in, in Korea and in Indochina and in, um, in Vietnam that um, I guess uh, that challenged American power and and seemed to have forced a closer connection 
to Palo Alto, but also fed in more of the sustenance for some of the for the racial for the racialism for the racism for also also like you know the, this anti-communism to come in and and within it also have another form of racism. I mean, I would, I would love to hear you know, I guess a little bit on sort of how the a little bit on the geopolitics that I think also like kept the Palo Alto system sustained. But also, you know, the ways in which that anti-communism uh, also reinforced and found like a uh, reinforced the racism that was already endemic and the hierarchical conception of you know man and the various races and their relation to each other and their intelligence, and was and was like proudly embraced and maybe used to also try to find a new desperate way to to sustain the empire and justify more imperial adventures. Um, and, and, and find Palo Alto and push Palo Alto deeper into the system. Yeah, the threat of global equality is the story of the book in a lot of ways. If you think about 100 years ago from now, the question of if global inequalities could be maintained into the coming century uh, was really up in the air, right? And people were betting against it, not just communists, obviously, or anti-colonialists, obviously, who saw a path to equality for themselves and for all people on the earth. But even by capitalists like Keynes or whoever else who figured, you know, 2020s, by the 2020s, we'll, we'll be done with this, everyone. There'll be no basis for maintaining global inequalities of, of like race and nationality and center and periphery. And now that the world is part of one system uh, and liberal thought has infected the globe, there's no way to maintain these unnatural inequalities. But people who benefited from those inequalities had to come up with some story, they had to come up with some strategy, and they had to synthesize those into uh, 20th century. And Palo Alto really becomes that answer for how do you maintain inequality at a time when the world system is totally integrated. And this is a problem that they're dealing with from the beginning of the university, from the beginning of David Starr Jordan and the first president and worrying about how war is dysgenic and how do you make war eugenic in a time of gunpowder when what he's, David Starr Jordan says, the clown can shoot down the hero at a time when the clown can shoot down the hero. How can you use war to promote the race? And, and racial quality. And the answer they sort of come up with is radar, right? And the answer they come up with is the nuclear missile. And the answer they come up with is the internet. And these are tools to answer that problem of equality. You know, how do you win a war when some schlub can pick up a gun and shoot you? Well, you hide in a bunker in America and you fire a cruise missile at them. And so that's the, that's the answer to this problem of the equality of all people. And you really see this flip around the 60s and 70s where anti-colonial forces around the world, communist forces around the world are insurgent. It looks like there's no way to hold them back, that they've got history on their side. And Palo Alto and Silicon Valley is the, the firewall, not just in terms of this technology, right? The nuclear missile that, that put a gun to the world's head and say, all right, if anything happens to America, then everyone dies. And not just the internet and the communication system that allowed them to maintain covert operations around the world uh, with plausible deniability. And you see that with the Iran-Contra, and you see that with the signals operations being run out of the Pan Panama Canal Zone, where they're able to turn 
the third world into, you know, massacre sites at will in the event that they're threatened. And so Palo Alto becomes the solution and becomes a solution ideologically, too, with the creation of this new sort of genetic ideas of uh, racial order and the bell curve and Jensenism and Shockley and Paul Ehrlich and this, these scientific racists that recreate these early 20th century eugenic ideas of the order of races using this new genetic language. Not, and I want to be careful, not using the new science of eugenics per se, because or Ehrlich's not, not a eugenic, eugeneticist, uh, Shockley's not a geneticist, Jensen's not a geneticist. These guys are not geneticists, just as the early, you know, bionomics guys studied like fish and uh, insects and stuff, right? They were not anthropologists, they didn't study people or whatever. So it's not that they're using the science of genetics to discover new things about humans. It's that they were using the language of genetics to give a new frame to these old ideas of racial hierarchy. And I think that that new genetic frame uh, is still very powerful today. Very still very influential, especially in Silicon Valley. Yeah, I mean, the, the, this is the whole point or the whole like like precepts of the so-called intellectual dark web right is like you have a bunch of you have a bunch of guys who uh don't study like scientifically the things that they spend all day talking about right because if you if you were to study the science of genetics or the science of evolution it might get in the way of the ideology that you're building around this uh, around your idea of what genetics or evolution is or should be and they don't even they don't even study their own history of their own ideas, right? So, like, bionomics is basically just evolutionary psychology uh, from a hundred years ago, right? They're like, oh yeah, evolution explains economics, evolution explains everything. You can explain everything through evolutionary competition. Same thing as Evo Psych, like same basic idea. And they don't have any. If you ask any of these Evo Psych guys, what is bionomics? They they don't know. They don't know that history. <laughs> like they don't know that this. That's even a word. Like they might make something up because they're uh, liars. They don't. They don't even know their own story, even just back a hundred years. So I think those guys could actually learn a lot from reading this book, uh, even as like bad readers, right? Even as like people who identify with maybe the villains of the book in some ways can still learn a lot about their own story we're gonna see the resurgence of like artisanal like bionomics now after so after they read your book and they're like damn that's i am a i am a bionomicist (laughs) (laughs) and hoover right i mean i don't think these guys know about hoover like they don't know the story of like who herbert hoover was and how he was the highest paid youngest mining engineer in the world or whatever and that he did that by just being like Hey, you Italians, you work for less now, you know, like this is, this is their icon. Like Elon Musk is nothing compared to this guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, like the story of Herbert Hoover that you get really deep into here is so interesting because I mean, I'm, I'm also, you know, especially if you're coming from the American education system, it's like literally the only thing I, I knew about Herbert Hoover from like, you know, from school was, you know, Hoovervilles, right? Like, you right. know, but that even that is more just like, like a buzzword, just like a, a neuron firing in my brain. It doesn't have any like real signification or contextualization. Um, and there was just that is like the least uh, of, of Herbert Hoover's uh, adventures. 
Yeah, even the liberals admit that wasn't really his fault now. It's kind of funny that even if you read like the Galbraith or whoever else is like, yeah, Hoover didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't really his fault. Like <laughs> if he could have stopped it, he would have stopped it. And it turns out to be like at least FDR's fault as governor of New York as much as Hoover's fault. And it's really funny. You can imagine, and I did sort of inhabit uh, Hoover's anger in that moment in 32 a little bit where like obviously he fucks up in a bunch of different ways, uh, not least of which is attacking the bonus marchers as a communist insurrection and like, you know, beating a bunch of veterans on the floor of the White House or or on the lawn of the White House. Not a great re-election look. Um, (laughs) But I really, I I did sort of feel for him as this like self-made, quote unquote, you know, Stanford made, whatever, but self-made orphan uh, who rose to the presidency based on his like technocratic ability, getting just crushed by FDR, who's this like blue blood guy from New York, where all his friends are the ones who crashed the economy. Like, I, and then everyone turns on Hoover too, right? All the like capitalists who help him get elected in twenty eight and thirty two are like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't even run you. Like, maybe you shouldn't even be here. Like, I don't know you. Like Hearst, Dupont, you know, all these guys who later are important figures in the conservative revival for a moment lose faith in Hoover and decide to back Roosevelt and really provide the, a lot of the important energy behind Roosevelt and the new deal. So I could see from the, the Hooverian perspective, the resentment someone would have to feel in that position. It, it it is almost shocking when you bring up the like the Hoover versus FDR, the, how much that mirrors Nixon versus JFK, right? Where Nixon is also you know not from Palo Alto, but he's from the Inland Empire, right? He's a Southern mm-hmm. California boy, uh, and and you know just gets also completely rinsed by this blue blood from Massachusetts, um, and Nixon. Uh, was similarly uh, this kind of, you know, really dogged, you know, in a way self-made as much as you can be self-made and rise to the presidency, but self-made man. And, you know, and it seemed like they were both Nixon and uh, uh, Hoover were possessed by the the Rodney Dangerfield, you know, get no respect, right? You get, you get these blue bloods from Massachusetts and we get no respect. Well, it was more that was much more Nixon than Hoover, and Hoover really didn't that put Hoover in a bad position because he's the 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 good old boy. That was his classic, you know. His whole thing was that he was buds with everybody, and that he had a lot of friends, and so his friends really abandoned him in this moment. And he blames FDR, and he blames communism, um, and he experiences the, these progressive turns of the era very personally, both in terms of his power, but also in terms of his bank account, right? He has shares in these mines that are being nationalized around the world. When the Bolsheviks come and take a bunch of mines, he has to issue some statement being like, I'm not personally against this. You know, I'm not funding this army that's fighting you guys because of my personal interests in these mines. And it's a little bit like, uh, the question's already answered on my t-shirt, right? <laughs> like, sure you aren't, buddy. Like, uh, if you're worried about the 
the Bolsheviks taking your minds. Like, no, I'm not worried about it at all. And same with in China, the Boxer Rebellion, and just like worldwide, he even the farm worker uprisings in California, he takes personally because they are at the Hoover Farm is one of the sites of farmer communist farm worker uprising. So, like as a capitalist and as a friend of all capitalists everywhere in the world, he experiences this these communist revolts and anti-colonial revolts personally, very, very extremely personally. And he takes that energy into the post-war period where it's important to remember that he outlives Roosevelt and that there's this period where after Roosevelt's death and before Truman's election, where Truman's the president, but Hoover is the last elected president. And Truman brings Hoover in to help him sell the Marshall Plan and post-war reconstruction to congressional Republicans, and Hoover does that, and Hoover travels around Europe uh, and Japan, and he installs, you know, flunkies of Hoovers to rebuild the these countries in the post-war, and that becomes crucial to the post-war order for the United States. And so, I think we're living in a in a much more Hooverian world than we're willing to admit. Um, and we think of FDR as having the bigger presidency, obviously, because he had so many terms and. Uh, makes all these big changes. But if you look at, you know, if you're sitting in the 80s looking back, or if you're sitting in the 2020s and looking back, you got to score it to Hoover, right? Like, he's the one who really ends up on top. And you can see it instantiated through the the Hoover Institution, which becomes this crucial uh, institution for the conservatives. And, like, Reagan is selected out of a shady back room at Hoover in Palo Alto. Uh, George W. Bush is selected out of the same shady back room by the same shady guys out of Palo Alto. And so as much as we think, yeah, Texas or somewhere else might be the center of conservatism in America, maybe even Connecticut, uh, so much of these decisions are coming out of Palo Alto. Yeah, I mean, speaking speaking of uh, Condoleezza Rice is currently the director sure. of the Hoover Institution, yeah. right? So, like, mm-hmm. it's all the same people <laughs> stretching back. I mean, I think you make an extremely compelling case in the book that we are living in the Hooverian century um, more so than than uh, you know most other. Uh, people that we look back on as, you know, like FDR is having this like big, uh, you know, uh, massive, just, you know, era defining impact. Like Hoover was like a good mining engineer. He was working beneath the surface, right? He, he mm-hmm. was laying, he was laying that groundwork and, and, and all of that. I want to talk a little bit. You, you mentioned there a few times as well, the kind of the, the way that anti-communism really motivated, uh, a lot of Hoover's actions as well as, I mean, just frankly, like everyone's actions at that time, uh, to, you know, in, in, in a, in a massive degree, but, I want to talk a little, I want to get a little bit meta, um, here as well and, and think about that. Cause you do, um, in some interviews around the book, you have talked about Palo Alto as a history of class struggle, um, in a lot of ways. Right. And, and this is a very much, you know, historical materialist book, which is why I think, uh, we've all, uh, deeply connected with it. Um, and, and, and I, you had a quote in a, an LA Times, 
profile or interview with you around the book that I will I want to just say I think it was really great where you said quote the book is not polemical I'm a Marxist I wrote a Marxist book because I think that's the best way to get at the truth of this historical situation and I, I want to talk about that what does that mean to get at the truth of this in a Marxist way and I'll do that by uh, before you jump in, I, I just want to read a paragraph from um, the the very end of the uh, of chapter one point one in the book, where you kind of lay out uh, what a historical materialist uh, approach without naming it as such. You can only go so far in a book like this, uh, but you lay out a historical materialist approach to this where I, I think it would, I would love to hear you expound on that more explicitly. So you write on uh, page 37 in the book, what interests me is not so much the personal qualities of the men and women in this history, but how capitalism has made use of them. To think about life this way is not to surrender to predetermination. Only by understanding how we're made use of can we start to distinguish ourselves from our situations. How can you know what you want or feel or think, who you are, if you don't know which way history's marionette strings are tugging? In the following pages, you'll meet characters who find ways to tug back, who pit themselves against the way things are and come to personify the system's self-destructive counter-tendencies. People aren't puppets, and to pull a purpose, a person, is to create the conditions for rebellion. Maybe we're more like butterflies, pinned, live, and wriggling onto history's collage. If, as I have been convinced, the point of life and the meaning of freedom is to make something with what the world makes of you, then it's necessary to locate those places where history reaches through yourself and sticks you to the board. I began this project with the fact that the railroad that brought the mass of capitalist Anglo settlers to California is the same railroad my classmates used to kill themselves. I love that because I think it is such a crystal clear and succinct uh, explanation of the interminable structure agency debate, but also what it means to actually do a kind of historical materialist analysis, to understand uh, history as the product of many contradictions, many structures, many antagonisms and struggles, um, as well as the people, uh, both large and small, many and few, who are part of that and are trying to make the best of it as they can and do with it what they're given. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, I think there's a really easy but mistaken way to read Palo Alto, which is yet another history of great men, right? But instead of one great man, you know, Steve Jobs in a Walter Isaacson kind of way, it's a, it's a history of, of, of many great men throughout one place, right? Leland Stanford, uh, you know, Herbert Hoover, William Shockley, William Henry Gates III, Stephen Jobs himself, right? Like, but that's not what you're doing here. You, you, you are structuring Palo Alto along the stories and interactions and systems and so on that these people emerge out of and fit into uh, in, in various ways um, because that's how you have to structure a book and a, and a narrative um, and tell a story, but always explicitly and uh, subtextually um, what you're most interested in, I think, is that understanding 
these more broader historical materialist developments, um, these systems, these struggles, uh, what his, how history is made and what, uh, what people do with the history that they're given. So I would love it if you would just expound on, on, on your approach, um, theoretically and analytically, um, to researching and, and writing the book. Yeah. But I mean, you just, uh, you just told it all right there, man. Uh, I, one of the things, let's say, one of the things I've been given that I've tried to make something out of is this Marxist tradition, this historical materialist tradition, um, which, you know, someone who knows that tradition well could listen to what you said and say like, oh yeah, that's Sartre, right? <laughs> like, it's not like I didn't make that stuff up. Uh, that's Marx, that's Sartre. There's a, there's a theoretical tradition that's undergirding the whole project for sure. And the way I'm talking about these characters um, is I think in accordance with that perspective, or I try to put it in accordance with that perspective. When people, people sometimes, it's interesting, people talk about it as a history of great men in some ways. Some people have, and some people have talked about it as a history of below. And I think it's funny that people have gotten both of those from the book, even though they're like directly contradictory methods. Uh, and I think that's the answer is because I'm looking at capital, right? And capital is always dependent on labor. There's no one side without the other. You can't just take the good part or the bad part and understand it that way because it's always a relation, right? You never have one side of a coin. A coin's always got two sides. And it's the same thing with the capital relation. And so if I'm focusing on workers, and owners, it's because their relation is mutually co-constitutive, right? That you can't have one without the other. And that tension between the two is the engine of history. And so when I'm thinking of how do you phrase this history to people in a way where they can see themselves as part of it, but then also not just a determinative part or determined part of it, but a determining part of it. How do they think about themselves as an active part of the history? I think you partly get that from telling people stories and how people have made themselves agents in their own history. Uh, but you also see it the other way, right? How history has made use of people and how history sometimes twists people against their own intentions and their own desires. Um, and putting that out all all out to people is tough. It's hard to like frame it that way. Cause I don't think that's the way we are usually meant to understand history. It's hard to like nail that perspective in a society that doesn't teach kids about Sartre, uh, you know, from a young age or whatever. It doesn't teach them that they should be making something out of what is made of them. But I think it's also a very intuitive idea. I think people understand it when I've talked about it and, um, and it's not that I couldn't use all the Marxist jargon that I wanted, right? No one told me that I needed to make the book less jargony. It's that I think these ideas are true and they're, they're really useful to approach these questions. And I think anyone can make use of them, right? Anyone can pick up these ideas about making something that's made uh, out of what the world makes of you and make something out of that, right? I think it's, a, it's very accessible. So, And that's how I wrote it. I wrote it for to be read as by as many people as possible um, on purpose. And that's the only way I'd want to write it. And I think that people can get those ideas. I don't think there's any reason we need to, to write down to anyone. One thing I also want to ask, you know, we've talked a lot about um, the right wing nuts and creeps and capitalists that have kind of dominated this entire system. But you also do talk about what leftists did um, in the middle of this and that it's not an uncontested project. 
um, especially in the Bay Area, where you have the Black Panther Party, you have the Maoist People's Defense League, I think, um, SDS. You have all these organizing, organized groups, militant groups, intellectual movements that are making sense of this system, which has been going on for some time, but is seems poised to to ascend to new heights um, at a time where we're also uh, organizing to and some of the some of the more louder imperial adventures the united states is engaged in at the time i would love to kind of talk about you know one i think uh you know that that section specifically where you talk it's titled how to shoot the or to shoot the computers which is a fun name i think because I, a lot of times when we also talk about how leftists resist um military industrial complex i think some of this history of theorization and sabotage and an outright resistance is lost um but also because i think it's like really important in that the way that the states and some of these ideologues end up responding right also kind of forms the backbone and the framework of the responses that go on since to kind of like smother these ideas out of public imagination to outright just make it impossible to really do this sort of organizing or um to make it illegal as hell <laughs> essentially right well and to just protect the computers right yeah. to physically remove the computers from physical from public spaces amazon puts them <laughs> in so, tanks like literal fucking tanks right? <laughs> Well, and to to look at that, you got to go back to the new left and dispel a little bit the standard history, which uh, you guys, I'm sure, are very familiar with, which is you got the good version and the bad version, the sort of the John Markoff version and the Californian ideology version, which is the hippies invented the computers. And it's either the hippies invented the computers and that's good, or the hippies invented the computers and that's bad. And those are the like prevailing ideas about the relationship between the, the counterculture and even the new left, right? They say the new left in the Californian ideology. They got no business saying the new left, but they say the new left. And technology and the personal computer age. And when I went back and looked at the history, especially from this anti-colonial lens where the most important thing going on is the war in South Asia, it's not you know the lyrics to the Grateful Dead songs that are being produced at the time. Uh, it's the Vietnam War and the Korean War. And on that axis of conflict, the new left was trying to blow up every computer in the country because they understood them correctly as part of war work and part of capitalist work. And so Bank of America branches in California get bombed one a month for two years. You see computer senders all over the country, but in particular in California, sustaining attacks from students on those campuses. You see like not just the Stanford computer, but also the Fresno State Computing Center gets Molotov, for example. Um, a number of buildings on Stanford campus get attacked. Uh, anything that's got a computer in there. And they like freak out. They're like, all right, what are we, how are we going to protect these computers? Uh, and it ends up culminating partly in the rise of the personal computer and the privatization of computing power, where they take it out of public institutions, off campuses, into the private sector where they can better protect it, even with the police, right? The police can better protect computers when they're held in the private sector, 
rather than in universities where the whole community has some kind of claim on the territory. And this history is not uh, very well recorded. It's not very well emphasized in the history of the Bay, in the history of technology. And I think a big part of it has to do with the marginalization of the new left. And one thing I like to talk about is we hear often in descriptions of the new left about the yippies trying to levitate the Pentagon, right? That's a classic example of the ineffectiveness of the new left and their fantasies and whatever. Uh, they, we don't talk about SDS bombing the Pentagon computers and taking out uh, aerial targeting over Vietnam for two weeks, which I think is the most profound ethical act of the, of the era taken by any Americans. And why would we rather, why is the pop culture or the historiography more interested in this protest, goofy protest to levitate the Pentagon than they are in a literal bombing attack on the Pentagon by student activists? Uh, are they willing to like play down that aspect of the history in order to talk about something ridiculous instead? Uh, and I think it's important. I think the new left gets too little credit in the current historiography for sure. Kind of reminds me of the, some of the discourse that happened around the release of um, In Defense of Looting by Vicky Osterweil and then um, How to Blow Up a Pipeline by um, Andreas Malm, where a lot of the pushback, especially, I mean, these texts are largely historical texts that are just going through how people have resisted um, imperial domination and, and, and or apartheid and and a lot of it is with um, a combination of nonviolent and violent tactics but also trying to move property damage and sabotage out of the realm of violent resistance um, and instead look at why it's an ethical imperative in a lot of instances and the backlash was really interesting in that a lot some of it followed these lines that you've also identified and laid out where there's an insistence to cling on this like framing of the new left as a bunch of like yuppies and a bunch of like you know student activists who didn't really know what they were doing tried to levitate the pentagon you're just like you know stood on police cars so on and so forth but instead of i think and of course you know this would be the case because it would underline like how how critical or militant how how thoughtful a lot of the criticisms were in their understanding of power right and and what 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 would it look like if people similarly landed on the same conclusions that okay like our our ICT systems you know the the whatever nexus or nodes of um of our computer systems are publicly accessible or should be publicly targeted or sabotaged or people internal to these systems should forget how to sabotage them because they sit even more so today, at the juncture of like global war machine, of uh, global ex ex you know ex expropriation machine, of, of global capitalism itself. But we can't have people having these sort of analyses. But then, but it, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting to see that and there were a lot of critiques that were coming from I think even people on the left who felt like it felt like they were falling for that same trap and same kind of superficial framing of what the new left was about and what it was doing and why we should what we should learn from them as like a militant, non-violent, non-confrontational, uh, non-sabotorial uh, movement instead of like people who were trying to figure out you know within the ethically what was the most that they were what were they what was imperative for them to do what were they required to do um and what and what how their analysis would bring them to bear bring their focus to bear on 
you know these these computers, these machines, these these things, these new inventions. Well, not new, but you know these inventions that were supercharging uh, imperialism and supercharging exploitation and expropriation across the world and in the United States. Yeah, it would be a real shame if they like learn something about this history, right? It would be a real shame if some of them were listening to this show currently and learned about the history of attacks on data processing infrastructure um, <laughs> and saw themselves in the history of that uh, lineage. That would be that would be a scary time. And these systems are very fragile, um, and they've been very fragile for a long time. Uh, and I think there's a lot people can learn about... Uh, the order of struggle and and strategies and tactics and what happens when you come up against an in, an inflexible system. Uh, so I, I would not be surprised to see people learning all sorts of lessons from the new left that they didn't expect to learn or that doesn't line up with the hippies made computers and that's bad story, the sort of <clears throat> century of the self uh psychoanalytic version of the new left and instead looked at the anti-colonial version of the new left, which is the one that I think really mattered and the one we can take a lot from right now. So there are a lot of threads that people can pick up with this book and uh, I, I hope they do. Yeah, I mean, just, of course, a, a favorite of ours and something essential to our, our philosophy here is Luddism. And I mean, there's just so many ties there, too, the way that the, the original Luddites, you know, a labor movement uh, have, have been painted as, you know, primitivist, you know, technophobes and, and so on, rather than uh People, as you know, the historian David Noble put it right. People, you know, people, perhaps the 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 last uh, bastion of people who really understood technology in the present uh, in the present tense. But I think your book shows that's not that's not true. Uh, we just don't know the histories of a lot of these people. Like I'm thinking as well around like what you talk about with uh, uh, Vince Ramos, the Chicano multinational militant group that was you know committed to armed struggle and the way in which you know and like the in '69, uh, you know they you tell the story of how they chased David Packard around the Bay Area, trying to citizens arrest him, uh, and then they also firebombed uh, William. Hewlett's house, right? And it's like, like what? What would this group? And, and maybe we can uh, start. I know we don't want to keep you forever, although we we absolutely would love to, Malcolm. But maybe <laughs> we can uh, start thinking about, or you could talk to us a little bit about what would what would a Chicano mil leftist militant group be doing chasing around uh, the the founders of Hewlett Packard, uh, you know, the the personal computing company. Yeah, well, I mean, David Packard was a deputy secretary of defense for Nixon during Vietnam, right? So these these connections between Palo Alto, Silicon Valley, and defense and defense activities have always been pretty clear and pretty deep at the same time. And again, people are doing this kind of work right now. I think it's Jack Polson uh, with Tech Inquiry has been doing some really good research in this tradition about what is the relationship between the tech industry and the war machine. Uh, and the people need to start drawing maps again, right? That's what they were really, one of the things the new left was really good at was drawing maps and connecting their campus to Vietnam and saying Vietnam is being fought on the Stanford campus and which side are we going to be on? Uh, and yeah, they they did chase David Packard around. They made it 
the so he what they the press release they released said David Packard can't even show his face in the town that he owns, and I thought that was like pretty sweet. And they chanted uh, Packard before Cali, and Lieutenant Cali was one of the most notorious war criminals of the Vietnam era. And they said arrest Packard before Cali, uh, and they they did. He couldn't appear in in Palo Alto for fear. And again, they, yeah, they did uh, bomb William Hewlett's house as a war profiteer, and. Uh, so today's tech, as much as today's tech leaders and Silicon Valley leaders feel alienated, feel like the world's against them, feel like everyone's mad, uh, they've got it real easy compared to <laughs> yeah. you know, how people used to have it. You know, maybe and maybe not for very long. Maybe that's something that they understand and that they're they're sensing. And when they're talking about building their bunkers or whatever, or their private islands or their seasteads or whatever or their lunar column, Mars colonies, that's the same Palo Alto instinct, right? To escape somewhere else where you can get away from this class conflict and somewhere peaceful where you can be in charge. But they don't really have anywhere to go. Uh, so maybe they understand that they're, they're stuck here with the rest of us a little bit. Yeah, no, I, th I think I think that's a that's a great place uh, to leave it right there. Uh, thank you, Malcolm. This has been a, a real joy. Reading your book was, I mean, we, we've only scratched the surface as we possibly could with a 700-page book that is just packed full of so much great analysis, so much history, so much of this lost history, right? Like, you know, the, 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 there, there, are t there are sections of the book that make the book itself worth the, <laughs> worth the cover price. And I think absolutely digging into David Packard and William Hewlett, which we've only just touched on, and I hope that's a teaser because their DNA, the, the things that they innovated in terms of like how to run a tech company um, and why, what the purpose of a tech company is, thinking about ways of uh, the, the, the kinds of things that, that really pull the, um, the, the class consciousness out of workers in tech, you know, giving them a share and shares in the company, making the, your job feel like home with beanbag chairs and ping pong tables and stuff. Um, so that you no longer think of yourself as a worker, but as a, as a, as an owner, a lesser owner, but a loner, an owner, nonetheless invested in the company. That's an innovation of, uh, David Packard. Right. And so like, there is just so many of these things uh, which is what a book like this should do is you understand what's going on now um, and then you trace back its history to all of these lesser known um, figures who, like Herbert Huber, Huber like William Shockley, uh, learning the true history of, of, of Bill Gates, William Henry Gates III, you know, all of that stuff. Pick up the book. Pick up Palo Alto. It will give you the exact understanding of Silicon Valley that we need now so that we can then see where things are heading and where they need to be heading um, you know, in terms of repudiating that history and, and so on. So with all that said, Malcolm, uh, it's been a real joy. Uh, people should buy your book. Uh, 
at the indie bookseller, uh, preferably. Um, uh, <laughs> wherever fine books are sold. The important wherever thing fine is to books buy. Are buy, sold. buy, buy, buy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> buy, buy, um, buy. And, and of course, follow you on uh, Twitter at Big Mean Internet. <laughs> and those links will be in the uh, episode description. Anything else you want to leave people with, Malcolm, before we let no, you go? No, thanks. Thanks, you guys, so much for having me. I'm sure the listeners are already clicking the buy button with that, mm-hmm. that t- if they hard sell already. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. And of course you, dear listeners can find us at patreoncom slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week. Uh, and I think we've got, we've got a nice, li- nice one lined up for you today. We, we, uh, for later this week, we think we're going to be taking a hard look at a, at a nice new op-ed by, um, one's Henry Kissinger, Eric Schmidt, and Daniel <laughs> oh, Huttenhocker. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Powerhouse Our team. finest tech theorists. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> um, so come, come listen to us uh, tell you what they think about chat GPT, what we're all baying and, oh, and dying to hear about. Uh, oh, <laughs> but until then, later. Adios.
you.